The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. Ross O'Carroll Kelly's father, Paul Howard, is with us. Paul, good morning. <laughs> Charles. I'm Charles O'Carroll Kelly. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to figure, do I make you foster dad? Is it stepdad? What's the, the correct term? Have you any interest being a former sports journalist in uh, Notre Dame Navy? Um, not no. really. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> One of the do rules you know of improv is no is not acceptable. What, no, as, a, as a football fan and, and, and what, what, what they were called soccer, um, there's far too many stoppages in it for me. And it, it, I, I like something a bit more free-flowing. Um, you see, I thought that because I think when you're brought up in, in Europe to watch sport, you believe that the action of watching sport is a continuous dedication to the game. Yeah. Whereas in actual fact, you just need to view it as entertainment in the middle of something else. Yeah. You go I, to drink I, beer and talk yeah. and a little bit of American I totally football get that. I used to go to the um, the Amer- American sh- uh, pizza pie factory used to host a, a Super Bowl party every year and it was one of the best shows in town. Uh, but none of us actually watched the football. We used to we used to eat the pizza and drink the beer. Was that the place that was in the corner of Stephen's Green? Yeah, yeah. Just that around the corner from here, yeah. What was your man from the Chicago Bears? Um, the Fridge. Do you remember yeah, the Fridge yeah, Perry? The fridge. There was a big picture of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was brilliant. But my problem with American football, it's not a problem. I, mean, I, I don't think about it all the time. But in soccer, a, a goal when a goal is scored, it's very decisive. The net. Bulges and the same in Gaelic football. In rugby, you see somebody crashing over the try line to put the ball down. In basketball, the ball goes through the hoop. I just can't accept that somebody catching a ball or running with a ball into a certain zone is that's a, a fine score. point. And that's totally my cultural ignorance. I understand. No, that. no, you're dead right. Lean into it. <laughs> that thing of when 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 they're doing the, the replay slowly and they're all discussing whether or not the ball broke the plane. Yeah. It's it's that. It's yeah, not, yeah. Put it on the ground, lads. That's how this you you even term it a touchdown. Yeah. Why yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On the topic of rugby, Ross O'Carroll Kelly is back for which number is this? Oh, this is book number tw- it's the twenty-third novel in the trilogy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I started and I, I just couldn't stop. <laughs> 23. Yeah, yeah. And when I started writing Ross and Carol Kelly back in the, in the, the late 1990s, um, he was a 17-year-old wannabe rugby player. He was a school's rugby player. And now he's a 40-year-old man with grandchildren. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's half a lifetime. It's amazing. I remember years ago, um, uh, Bunny Carr was asked, what's the difference between an amateur and a professional? And he said, an amateur can be really good. A professional can be really good right now. Yeah. And that capacity to say, I'm going to put out another one, going to put out another one, going to put out another yeah. one. It's an amazing ability to have. Because I was saying to you, I was, uh, I'm about a third of the way into the um, Camino Royale, which is the current one. There's bits of it that are laugh out loud funny. Lots of bits of it that are laugh out loud funny. To be able to do that on the 23rd book, is, <laughs> well, it's a God, gift. Thank God for that. Gift. <laughs> I have to say, I will never again look at a Deliveroo driver the same way or a top loading washing machine. It has to be said. I hadn't realised you keep the filth out of the column. There's no sex in the Irish Times. No, there isn't any sex in the Irish Times. No, I keep I keep the good stuff for the books. <laughs> <laughs> I keep the sugar for the books. Um, I, I suppose I'm conscious that there, there's two very different readerships. And uh, I became aware of this about five or six years ago. You know, that the the readership of the of the of the book of the, of the, of the weekly column in the Irish Times tends to be what I call golf club mums and yachting dads. And they they might not be they might not have read the books. Whereas the people who read the books have followed me from 
kind of, you know, when they were in secondary school at the same time as Ross and are now 40 year olds with children. And I get this all the time because I do readings in, you know, I've, I've been going to Blackrock College for over 20 years, once or twice a year to read to the kids and, and, and all schools, schools all over Ireland and colleges. And people used to say to me, I'm a huge fan of your stuff. And now they say, my dad is a huge <laughs> fan. My mom loves your stuff. Um, so, yeah, so it's so it is a reflection of how, how long I've been doing See, it. See, that's the bit that I don't get is I would have thought because it, it's evident when you read it that this is farmed fairly directly from that milieu of people like you, you've yeah. you've been watching and observing. I don't know how they don't all climb up when you come near. Yeah, I suppose a lot of them, um, trying to put this as delicately as I can, um, a lot of them don't really have any embarrassment gene, uh, <laughs> which which, which has been, you know, the, I think the most important observation I've made about um, South Dublin middle classes over the last 25 years is they don't really have that, that function, that embarrassment gene. They're quite happy to openly talk about things. And I get this on social media all the time. People tell me tales about themselves and about their friends. And yeah, I, I, I mine those all the time for storylines. How do you spot the trends, though? Because that's one of the things that you are brilliant at is being on the money for what's the coming thing that people are now into. I mean, even the, the fact of the Camino, that thing of everybody's now doing this. Yeah. You have to be ahead of that because you have to have it written and published in time to meet the crest of the wave. Yeah. That's some well, skill. I, I'm, I mean, I'm an absolutely voracious uh, reader of newspapers. I, I, I still buy newspapers. I, they call them physical newspapers now, but I call them newspapers. Uh, I buy six or seven newspapers a day. And, Do you? you know, Every read, day? Yeah, yeah. Read them from cover to cover, which is... I got into the habit of it when I was a journalist and I still do it. And I want, I want to know everything that's happening politically, uh, culturally. Um, and yeah, a lot of those things I, I um, reflect in the books. Um, but a lot of it is what I hear and what I experience, what I observe. A lot of my friends are doing the Camino or have done the Camino for the last few years. And a friend of mine, ra I rang a friend of mine who I knew had done the Camino and I said, um, going to write the next book. I think it's time Ross and his mates walk the Camino. And he said, oh, brilliant. I said, can you give me any any uh, steers? And he said, but you read my you read my blog, didn't you? <laughs> right. And this is like this is a lesson for anybody who's ever traveled anywhere and written a blog. Right. Nobody read your blog. You right. sent it out. Nobody read it. And and I and he said to me, could you be telling me next you didn't you didn't read my blog when I went to Southeast Asia? <laughs> I didn't read that one either. It's, it is the sort of the modern version of when you come over and sit down and watch our holiday slides, isn't it? Completely. Like, oh, oh, the birth of our child or oh, something, oh, you know. <laughs> but it's not just the big thing. Like, it's not just the thing of the, the Camino, the kind of the activities that people are into. Like, a lot of this hinges on, uh, to, to use the way that you would write it, Ross getting his horse out in a... Uh, pub in Cork, yeah. which by his own description was hilarious. This was back in the days when this kind of thing was considered hilarious. So it's, pro it's you know, classic rugby jock behaviour. Uh, he was in a pub in Cork. Munster were in a Heineken Cup semi-final. They were losing. He saluted the pub <laughs> in, the be in the only way he knew how. And um, he ended up getting charged with um, indecent exposure. He blamed it on a friend of his, gave his friend Fionda Barra's name to the guards and kind of went to court and accepted a conviction and the probation act under Fionn's name. But this comes back years later to bite him on the proverbial. 
But it's that kind of thing um, of tapping into those trends. Is that has that happened among the Southside posh rugby community that that type of behaviour is now anathema? Have they gone um, all woke? Is that what you're saying? I, I, d- I don't know. I don't spend enough time in rugby clubs. Thankfully. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Mustache, well, baseball the, cap. The very, theory. very first uh, Ross book was launched in Strabrook in Blackrock Rugby Club. And I remember there was, a, they partitioned off the bar from where the book launch was happening and there was a sort of wooden partition pulled across. And I remember somebody was getting, a, was being given a wedgie, which is this sort of cruel rugby club punishment where they sort of twist your boxer shorts until they snap. But the boxer shorts came, I was in mid-speech talking about, about Ross and why I'd invented the character. And these boxer shorts just came flying over the wood and just landed on the, fl- on the ground in front of me. And I went, this is this is what I'm talking about. This is it. Exhibit right A, here. ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, exactly. I was amazed to discover, I hadn't realised this, because I'm, I'm very surprised that you were even willing to countenance the notion. There was an attempt to translate Ross into other languages. Yeah, Russian. I Russian. don't see how that could... Now, maybe maybe there is... You know that thing of only in Ireland. I, <laughs> but I get the sense that there is a certain... That that world that he lives in only exists in a certain set of postcodes in yeah. South Dublin. Was yeah. it possible to move him? Well, well we try, they tried. There was a Russian publisher um, and they there, there was a grant that was available to translate uh, books, Irish books, into foreign languages. And... No one had shown any interest until this Russian publisher bought the rights or showed an interest in the rights at a trade fair. And he he claimed he got it. And then um, a, a, a translator called Alexander Golev was assigned to the to the story, to the case. And so he would ring me every Tuesday and Thursday night and he would uh, he would say to it wasn't so much the, the language. It was the kind of cultural references that were lost on him. So he would say, you know, what is Club 92? And I would have to explain <laughs> to this guy, you know, well, I see uh, Gronje Nishoiga is mentioned many, many times. I'm explaining the cultural significance of Gronje Nishoiga. I'm explaining, you know, uh, Gerald Keane and all, all these characters and what they mean. And so he got it. He totally got it. And then he did the translation. And uh, the only thing they couldn't get was that somebody who played rugby could be a hero among their peer group, their teen peer group, because it didn't mean anything in Russia. It's like lacrosse to me, for instance, you know. So he said, we're, uh, we're changing it to basketball. And when they changed it to basketball, uh, they lost the grant because it wasn't considered a faithful translation of the book. No. So, But anyway, uh, one one. Uh, several copies were produced and I had a copy in my hands at one point. And on the cover... Uh, was a, a cottage in the west of Ireland and a rainbow behind it looked like the most twee Irish kind of book you could imagine, you know, and I got they didn't really get it, you know. You mentioned the uh, the trying to explain what Club 92 and Gerald Keane is to a Russian audience. Um, one of the things that I'm intrigued by in this is how much you have uh, managed to weave real people mm. into the books. Is it not a defamation minefield? Because even in this, you've got uh, you've got Boris Johnson and uh, yeah. his wife. You've got um, Blondie Kofig. You've got Gerald Keane and his house being turned into a yeah. um, meditation center and recovery place down in Wicklow. Do, do the lawyers not get very <laughs> frightened? Well, 
Boris Johnson actually becomes uh, Ross's kind of, he develops a man crush on Ross in this book, you know. Well, who um, wouldn't? Uh, Let's I mean, be clear. Which, which I don't think is libelous. I am always careful. Generally, um, the people I talk about are people I've met before who who kind of get a giggle out of it. Like Blonde and Nikofig, um is is, uh, is a great pal of mine. Like, so, you know, I, I know there's no, I, I'm fingers crossed. <laughs> Sorry, <yes. laughs> I keep telling myself there are no writs about to issue. Um, the writ has hit the fan, um, but no, no. Um, generally, people laugh, and in fact, I, I, I can honestly say nobody has ever come back to me and said they were really hurt by being referenced. The vast majority of people ring me and say I love the reference to me. Uh, so, like the, the Richard Chambers, for instance, is mentioned quite a bit in the last book, and. He was absolutely delighted, thank God. Uh, Samantha Library from RTE, like she's she gets quite a few mentions, but but generally people like it. Yes, and you do a good job of. It is never they are sort of passing references rather than making yeah, them. Yeah, and the joke is never really on them. The joke is always on Ross. That's the. I mean, I think that's the key to it. You know, the, Ross is observe, is observing the world through the eyes of uh, an idiot. You know, and and so. <laughs> So the joke is never on them. No, and it goes back to that thing that you said about the the genetic incapacity to feel embarrassment. That's mm. where the, the the key of the humour with Russell Carroll Kelly and most of the characters in his orbit is that it, it is not that they are obnoxious, which many of them are. It's yeah. that they are completely immune to recognising that about themselves. Yeah, I to be honest, like the, the, the thing that makes me laugh more than anything else in the world, I think, is somebody who doesn't understand what's going on around them. The person who blithely walks into the room and totally misreads the room. I remember I was at a gig a few years ago. I was doing a, a coffee morning and it was an aid of a, a hospice, uh, which I support. And um, they booked a band. And I would say the average age of the audience was probably about 85. And this band were singing like, uh, I've been up, I've been down to the bottom of every ba- bottle. What's that? Ni- uh, Nickelback. Yes. They were singing this really, really hard rock and all these real, and, and that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen because <laughs> at no point even during the act did they think maybe we should throw a bit of Sweet Caroline on, you know. Just, just, we should, <laughs> now we're going to slow it down clips. a bit. Like, <laughs> the white clips, yeah. Do you then carry around, I assume, a, a dictaphone or a notebook or something? Like, are you farming those kind of instances all the time and thinking, keeping that one? Yeah, I, I mean, I always did. Like, I, I met Maeve Binchy when I was maybe 15 years of age and uh, I wanted to be a writer. And she said this thing that stuck with, with me, which was, if you want to be a good writer, you have to be a good listener. Um, and Maeve, Maeve told me she was sh- shameless in, in you know, eavesdropping and scribbling notes and stuff like that. Uh, I met her years later and I told her this and I said, oh, I was a kid when I met you and you told me this thing. And she said, I've read one of your books. You were clearly listening to different conversations to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I would go the back in the day. I used to go to Evoca Hamweavers or get on the Dart or get on the Lewis. But then as, as, as time went on. I discovered that you, you actually didn't need to listen that hard. This kind of stuff, this it came to you, you know. It was kind of, it was everywhere around you. You just had to listen. And the story, I, my favourite st- Ross story was, um, I was on a train to Galway and it was four for Leinster Galways across the across the aisle. And they're all on the way to a match in a Connacht, ma- Leinster Connacht match. And 
everybody in the carriage is listening to them. And that thing again, they've no idea that everybody's laughing, just just at their lives, just at the fact of them. Everybody's laughing. And then the driver announces, ladies and gentlemen, we will soon be arriving in Athen Rye. And the guys go, (gasps) (laughs) the mouths open and they look out the window. And then they look at each other and then they look out the window again and we're waiting for the punchline and the punchline is, these must be the actual fields. <laughs> well, there's one that I think fits in the, in that uh, general trend. One for Paul Harrods is a text. I, I'm a blow in from the Midlands to Kalini, Dorky, and I've read Ross for years. On Thursday, I walked with my son to the local park. On the 300 metre walk, I passed three Porsches, all less than 2020, and two girls, approximately nine years old, one was telling the other the best sites to go on our upcoming trip to New York. You really need to see the 9-11 memorial. It's so moving. I had a laughing to myself. I assume the logic there being that she's not 100% sure if it's a recognition of Porsches or of a terrorist attack. So how do you manage then to do the Ross books, the Ross columns and produce all of the other stuff? Because you're currently doing Bad Sisters. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm one of the writers on that show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm I suppose I had, uh, I, I, I had a good work ethic from my time in newspapers. I, I know how to work an eighteen-hour day. I don't always love it, but I know how to. I know how to do it. Um, I'm an early yeah, riser. It's easier in newspapers. The deadlines don't go away. You have to have it. You have to. You have your copy filed by X. Whereas a book, yeah. you know, Douglas I mean, you, Adams thing of yeah. I mean, I've never had that thing of writer's block. You know, like my first my first boss in the Tribune was was Vincent Brown. You know, and you couldn't tell Vincent that you had writer's block <laughs> at two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. You know, so it's um, it was a good lesson I think working for newspapers in uh, producing producing to deadline and you know oh, look everything you write is not going to be the greatest thing you ever write but you have an opportunity the next day to go back and look at it again but um, I, I've never allowed myself the indulgence of you know staring at the blinking cursor all day and then you know having dinner and saying didn't work out today you have I, I would love to at some point get um, more time with you to talk about it in detail but the the experience of bad sisters this is of course funded by Apple which means giant piles of money. You know, we're not talking a TV3 production here. So they're not giving it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but does it change how, how it works? Is, is this sort of writer's room, 20 people pitching jokes to each other? Yeah, well, it, it's smaller than that. The last writer's room we had, I think there was six, six writers, seven writers um, in the room, um, including Sharon Horgan, um, who who is uh, the creative genius behind the show. And it, it I mean, it's really interesting for me, because I haven't worked as part of a collaborative process uh, for quite a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, we get one episode each to write. I'm, I'm writing one episode of the next series, but it's it's a sort of mid-season on your own episode. Or do, do yeah, on my own, but it's a mid-season episode. So it's like being told you're writing chapter seven of the next Russell Carroll Kelly book. And so you have to read the six chapters and get voices right, get the language right, get the tone right, storyline, all that kind of thing. Um, and it's and it's lots of drafting. And so it's very different to a Ross book. I go away to write a Ross book like Camino Royale. I, I spent four months on it. I just went away, came back to my editor, Rachel Pierce, gave it to her. Uh, she read it, told me the things she liked and didn't like about it. And I went and did rewrites. But you did this, that in four months? Yeah, I mean, the, the, actually. The, it's 350 pages. Yeah, but the plotting takes, the plotting takes about three months as well. So my books, when I, when I write a book, I, I sit down. Uh, and plot every single beat that happens. Now, things can change during the course of a book, but generally I know 
what the start, the middle and the end is going to be for each of the characters. Well, fans will be delighted with this one. It is the uh, number one best-selling Camino Royale, the latest in the Ross O'Carroll Kelly series. Paul Howard, always a joy to have you in. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.